Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. you take it this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's gospel chapter 5. We'll be looking at only two verses this morning, verses 6 and 7. We are currently, as I said last week, in a series within a series, a, a mini-series within a larger, much larger series, because we're studying together this section of Matthew's gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But we're also currently looking at a section or a part of that sermon, really it's the introduction to the sermon, known as the Beatitudes, or the blessings. You notice there in verses 3 to 12 of chapter 5. And last week, we looked at together the first three of these Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. You see it there in verses 3 to 5. And this week, we're looking at two more of those Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and those who are merciful. And I don't know about you, but as I was studying these this week and over the last couple of weeks, I could probably spend weeks and weeks on each of these Beatitudes, just allowing them to stew and percolate in my own heart, revealing, pulling back layers in my own soul, and allowing the Spirit of God to really do a work in me. And He has, as I have been looking at these, and I pray and hope that He's been doing a work in your heart as well. And so, while we aren't aren't looking at these Beatitudes one at a time, we're not spending eight weeks here, one per week, we are slowing down and trying to do some reflection, trying to do some introspection. Because, if you remember, I told you that one of the purposes of the Beatitudes is to expose. It's like a multi-tool. It's got many functions, but they're meant to expose us. They're meant to bring to light. They're meant to convict. They're meant to encourage. And I hope that even the challenge to memorize the Sermon on the Mount will do that as well, because I really do believe, church, the Sermon on the Mount has the potential to be life-transforming for us. And so before we read our text here this morning in verses 6 and 7, allow me, if you would, just to remind you of a few things that we've seen already in our study so far. The first thing just to remember about the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount, generally speaking, and the Beatitudes even here more specifically, are describing the lifestyle or the way of life for the citizen of God's kingdom. That if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a kingdom citizen, then this is how you will live. This is the way of life. For kingdom citizens, 
And these are the characteristics, these are the traits and marks of every single believer. This is what a true Christian is. This is what true Christianity is. But second, we've also seen that these characteristics, this way of life described here, it isn't something we merit, it isn't something that we achieve, it isn't something that we earn in order to become citizens of the kingdom, but are describing the traits of someone who is already in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. So this isn't how you become a Christian. No, this is what Christians become. This is what you are. So these aren't qualifications for entry into God's kingdom. They're descriptions of the person who's already come under the rule and reign of King Jesus, who's already submitted their hearts and lives to him in saving faith, and they're already citizens of the kingdom, and this is now how God empowers his kingdom citizens to live. This is who they are. The fact that they're called the Beatitudes is only coincidental in English. It's only a coincidence, actually. You think, well, beatitudes, it's the attitudes I have to be. Well, it just comes from a Latin word that means beatus. It means blessings. But in one sense, yes, this is the attitudes every Christian must be, the beatitudes. So the fact that Sermon on the Mount begins with these beatitudes, these blessings, reveals this isn't merely a list of rules. This isn't merely a to-do list that we tack on to the end of our lives. This isn't just some sort of code of ethics that we live by. No, rather, what is described here is something internal. This is the core of who you are. This is the center of your being when God gives you a new heart. Because, listen, some of you some of you may be very confused about what Christianity is. Christianity isn't about people acting like they're poor in spirit, acting like they're meek. This is what Christianity creates people to be. This is who they are. It is a work of God in the soul, creating internal realities, which means the Beatitudes then are a call to self-examination. Self-examination. You go to the doctor, you get an exam, he runs a bunch of tests. Self-examination. Are these true of me? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. In other words, test yourself to see if you really are a believer, if you really are a citizen of the kingdom, if you're in the faith. Now, yes, there's unhealthy ways of doing that, being very introspective, but at the same time, you must examine yourself. 
Are you in the faith? Because if so, this is who you are. So, we must allow the Beatitudes to probe us. So let's continue that exposing work this week by examining here the next two. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you have your place there, would you stand? Although we're looking at just 6 and 7, I'm going to read through verse 12. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. Similar to last week, I want to begin here this morning just by giving you a bit more of the, the structure here of the Beatitudes, how these eight Beatitudes here, uh, how they're structured, how they're organized. I didn't want to just give it all to you at one time, so what I wanted to do is just kind of sprinkle it in over the course of several weeks as we're in these Beatitudes. So allow me just to give you a little bit more here of the structure of verses 3 to 12. I think it will be helpful, and I think you'll see just how masterful Jesus is in this sermon. So if you remember, I, I already pointed out the bookends, the sandwich there in verse 3 and in verse 10, if you notice, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the bookends. Everything in between these bookends characterizes the kingdom of heaven, the citizen of the kingdom. I've also pointed out the already not yet promises of the kingdom. Verse 3, verse 10, those bookends, present realities. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and yet in verses 4 to 9, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. These are future promises. So they're both present promises and they're future promises. But if I may, I want to give you another helpful clue this morning in understanding the structure of the Beatitudes, which will not only help us see their unity, but perhaps help you to see how Jesus intends for the order of this list here to flow from the inside out, to radiate out of you. Let me show you what I mean. I told you last week, I'll say more here in a moment about this, but there is a specific order. There's an intentional flow in the order of these Beatitudes. For example, just notice verses 3 to 5. We saw this last week. They're all Beatitudes of need. Of need. My, my neediness. 
The Christian is someone who is poor in spirit. They recognize their spiritual poverty. They recognize their bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy before God. And the Christian is someone who mourns. They grieve over their sin. They grieve over their need. They grieve over the sin of the world. They mourn. And as a result of that, they're meek. They're gentle. They view themselves rightly before God, and they relate rightly then toward other people. They're meek. And all of these express an awareness of our neediness, our inability, our insufficiency, our dependency upon God. There be attitudes of need. And then, though, look at verse 6. Verse 6 functions as the centerpiece, really. It's the central beatitude. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They need righteousness. They hunger for righteousness. They want righteousness. And they desire righteousness. This desire will then express itself in the next three beatitudes. Verses 7 and 9, which are all what we might call beatitudes of action. Verses 7 and 9, look there. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're all actions. Do you see that? So then three beatitudes of need, verses 3 to 5, followed by three beatitudes of action, verses 7 and 9, and they all flow from this desire for righteousness, verse 6. Then, finally, verses 10 to 12, that final beatitude is the expected response toward those who pursue this righteousness. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you see it? Three beatitudes of need, three beatitudes of action, and they all flow from this desire, this hunger, this thirst for righteousness. So I sort of picture verse 6 then this morning like a gate. It's like a, it's like a doorway. Everything comes through this. So we come this morning to the very center, and at the very center is a desire for righteousness. So we're looking at the next two in this list. Here's the outline this morning. It's very simple. You probably guessed it. Point number one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, verse 6. And we'll look at what does that mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And what are they promised by Jesus? That's the first point. Second, blessed are the merciful. Verse 7. And we'll look at what is mercy and why is it that only the merciful will receive mercy? So first, notice with me, point number one, First beatitude this morning, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Again, notice there, verse 6, this is, this is the pivotal beatitude. If poor in spirit was the first logical beatitude in this list, then hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the central beatitude. Because this one is looking back to what we just saw in the first three and it's looking forward to what we see in the next three. 
In fact, you could say this beatitude is central to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus says the next mark, the next characteristic trait of a citizen of my kingdom who has the favor and the blessing and the smile of God is that they will possess this intense desire and longing and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, it would probably serve us well, I think, in understanding this beatitude if we first answered the question, okay, what what is righteousness? What does Jesus mean when he says righteousness? Because there's several ways, there's several biblical categories for understanding this word righteousness. So what does this mean, this righteousness in verse 6? Well, first of all, first of all, there's what we might call a legal righteousness. Legal, not like you're in good with the police, but like a right standing with God. Legal righteousness. Some would call it an objective righteousness, an imputed righteousness before God. This is about your standing with God. It's the way Apostle Paul often uses this word righteousness in his letters. A righteousness, he says, from God. Meaning it's a righteousness that comes from outside of me. We read it a moment ago in our call to worship in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says here, notice Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning it's not a righteousness I do, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This this is an objective righteousness. This is a righteousness that comes from outside of me. This is what the reformers called an alien righteousness. So then this is a righteousness that God credits, imputes to guilty sinners by faith. And it's a free gift of his grace. That Jesus lived the life I failed to live. He died the death that I deserved, and on the cross, all of my sin was put on him, and in response, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and through faith in him, God counts, God credits, God imputes to me Jesus' righteousness. That's the gospel. That's That's the good news. There is none who's righteous, no, not one, and yet God has clothed me in his own perfect righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the good news. And in one sense, in one sense, this really is the doorway into the Sermon on the Mount. Because those who recognize their poverty of spirit... And those who grieve over their sin will realize their own need for perfect righteousness for God if I'm going to enter the kingdom at all. Martin Luther, he said when he understood his need for a righteousness that could only be credited to him by faith, here's what he said, quote, here I felt that I was altogether born again. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. That's the gospel. 
There is a legal righteousness that's necessary for you to enter the kingdom. But. But. That just isn't what Jesus is describing here. No. He isn't talking here about his own righteousness that he reckons to guilty sinners by faith. As true as that is, as wonderful as that is, praise the Lord. No, rather, he's describing here in verse 6 a personal righteousness. Not an objective righteousness, a subjective righteousness. In other words, you could say this is a practical righteousness. This is a righteous life. This is what those who have been declared righteous will do. So this is a righteousness then that works itself out practically in my life, living righteously. Do you see? New Testament scholar Charles Quarles, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes this, quote, The term righteousness here refers to actual personal righteousness that results from one's relationship with God. That is, the righteousness of sanctification rather than the righteousness of justification. Do you see? We're not talking about justification, legal righteousness here. We're talking about sanctification, personal, practical righteousness. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that's what Jesus is talking about? Well, first, let me give you a few reasons how we know that's what he's describing here. Because if imputed righteousness were in view here, the righteousness credited to me by faith, then Jesus would be calling and inviting us to pursue a righteousness that we can't achieve, that that we can't pursue, but it's only freely given. Second, The Beatitudes describe someone who's already in the kingdom. They're already declared righteous. Third, it's because of how that word righteousness is used in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Context is key. For example, turn with me, look at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. Another pivotal text in this sermon. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, my disciples, the citizens of my kingdom, have an altogether different kind of righteousness. It's not an external righteousness. It's a righteousness Internally, that flows from their heart. Or look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness. There it is. Practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So, clearly, this is a reference then to personal, practical righteousness, not a reference to our justification, our right standing with God. No, this is a reference to the believer's sanctification, their pattern of living. That's what this righteousness is. And notice, what should be our response to this kind of righteous living? Look there at verse 6. We will hunger 
and thirst for it. Verse 6, those metaphors there of hungering and thirsting, they describe an intense longing. This is a craving. This is a nagging, aching desire in our souls. For what? For righteousness. I think it's probably hard for us in the American West to really get a sense here of the type of hungering and the type of thirsting that Jesus is describing here, this nagging, aching, intense longing. Because, let's face it, you and I, we don't, we don't really know what real hunger and thirst is. We, we, we don't regularly experience this, I think, like many people in the world. I mean, we just go down the street and we get a drink. We go here and we get food, right? We don't really, I think, understand this. So the intensity, I think, here doesn't really resonate. Anybody ever seen the show Alone? History Channel, one of my favorite shows. Alone. They take 10 survivalists and they drop them out in the wilderness somewhere, alone for weeks, months at a time. And the last one remaining wins like $500,000 and a lifetime of therapy. And, <laughs> and, and what, what drives these people, once the show starts, is building their shelter. That's all, what they're all about. Okay? But then what drives them is hunger. I got to get food. I got to find food. I need food. I need drink, clean water, or I'm not going to make it. And several of them get so malnourished, they get so emaciated that they have to leave the show. So the entire show, here's the entire show, is about this gnawing, aching hunger and thirst. And beloved, that is what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This passionate pursuit, this gnawing, aching appetite in the soul for personal righteousness, this ongoing desire to live righteously, not, not simply because I fear God, but because it's what I desire the most. In fact, notice in verse 6 how these are present participles. Hungering, thirsting, meaning what? Implying this is a constant, perpetual longing that doesn't stop until I get it. In other words, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is an intense longing and desire for God. For His word, for His ways, for His will. It's a craving so intense to be conformed to the righteousness of the kingdom that it becomes elevated to the highest place of priority in my life. I am driven to seek it above everything else in life. Chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus will say, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So, beloved, that's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it like this, quote, he says, The desire to be free from sin in all its forms and its every manifestation. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be free from sin 
This desire to be free from sin in all its forms and every manifestation. You want righteousness in your own heart. You want righteousness in your own home. You want righteousness in your marriage. You want righteousness in your church. You want righteousness in the world. Because when God saves you and he changes you and he gives you a new heart, you become hungry and thirsty for him. For example, I don't, I don't know if you've thought about this yet, but just look ahead, if you would for a moment, at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, to the commands that are coming over the next several weeks and months. <laughs> they are daunting, to say the least. In fact, they're so daunting, some interpreters have said they're not even for this age. And they reveal this high, exalted standard of God's kingdom as it relates to my anger, as it relates to my sexual purity, as it relates to divorce, as it relates to oaths and loving my enemies and praying and fasting. So let me ask you, as you consider looking at this sermon for months, sermons for months about this stuff, how does that strike you? Can you say, I'm hungry for it? I desire it. Christ has given me his righteousness. He's clothed me in it. But at the same time, he's given me this new hunger, this new thirst for righteousness. Can you say that? Interestingly, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, every Christian is a slave to righteousness. You know what that means? It means that when you begin to veer from righteousness, when you begin to go off the path of righteousness, if you have a new heart, a new nature, you will inevitably come back because you're bound to it. You're a slave to it, put in you by the Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And it is your food to do his will. John 6. So let me ask you, is that you? Does that describe your desires, your pursuits? A desire for God, his righteousness, his kingdom, his ways? Or is your life more characterized by a desire for something else? Because a disciple of Jesus not only knows their sin and spiritual poverty and hates that sin, grieves over that sin, but they also recognize their need for righteousness and they hunger and they thirst. Does that describe you? Because then notice the promise Jesus gives in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then here's the promise. Here's why they're blessed. For they shall be satisfied so Jesus promises here that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if, if you desire his will and his ways and desire him above everything else in your life, aching and hungering and thirsting in your soul to be more righteous and to live more righteously, then you will be satisfied. You will get satisfaction. Which means a couple of things. First of all, I think it reminds us that 
The longing and aching of every human heart is to find satisfaction. There is, there is this hole in all of us. Everyone in this room, everyone that you meet on the streets, there is this hole. Everyone is aching and longing for satisfaction in life. That's everybody. But you see, the problem is that we try to find that in the wrong things, right? We try to fill it with the wrong things. We try to fill it with the, the wrong pursuits. We try to fill it with something other than God. And there is this God-shaped hole in every human heart that we try to fill, but we just can't seem to fill it. St. Augustine said, Our hearts were made for thee, O God, and they are restless until they find rest in you. There is no satisfaction apart from him. You try to find it in work, you try to find it in relationships, you try to find it in money or in whatever it may be. It's not going to fill you. It's not going to satisfy you. And yet Jesus says to us, John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 4, he says, whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Listen, only Jesus can fill that longing and aching in every human soul. Only he can satisfy you. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. But what I want you to see is that Jesus' promises, his promise here in verse 6 is ultimately future. It's a future blessing. Look there. Yes, while he alone can satisfy you, and that gnawing hunger can be filled now, <laughs> here's the irony. The irony is that the Christian life is one marked by both hunger and satisfaction at the very same time. Doesn't that seem ironic? I still hunger, and yet I'm satisfied. Why? why? Why is that? Here's why, church. Because ultimately, ultimately, this satisfaction is something future. This satisfaction is something that's coming one day. It isn't hard to observe that there is a lack, a lacking hunger in, for righteousness in our day, right? Many... Christians I know, some have left the faith, some have left the church. Christian leaders have fallen in ministry because of unrighteousness. I mean, I was just looking recently at a popular pastoral book on pastoral ministry, and almost all of, or at least half of the endorsers on the back of that book are all now out of ministry because of sin. Our culture continues to spiral in moral decay. Righteousness is just eroding. The world, far too often the church, is full of pornography, broken marriages. On top of all of this, my sin clings so closely to me. I've seen friends and those I love walk away from this righteousness. And we can become so disillusioned by the sin and the rebellion that we see all around us that it makes us want to throw in the towel and say, is it even worth it? 
I mean, is it even worth trying to pursue this righteousness? And yet the hunger still remains. But here, Jesus promises it will be satisfied. That darkness seems pervasive. It's tempting to give up. But he's promising here eternal satisfaction. And there's coming a day... When we will be fully righteous, you will be righteous, this world will be righteous, everything you know will be righteous. And the hungry and thirsty will receive the happy, blessed smile of God forever. Satisfaction is coming. But then notice, the Beatitudes now take a turn... And they move from, notice the flow, Beatitudes of Need, verses 3 to 5. The central Beatitude of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And now Beatitudes of Action in verses 7 to 9. So let's look next, finally, this morning, just at this fifth Beatitude in the list. Number, number 5, verse 7, heading number 2, blessed are the merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So notice here, there's now a transition that's happening in this list where the Beatitudes move from needs to actions. From, from our attitudes toward God to really our attitudes and our actions towards other people. And the very first action, notice this that flows from the heart of a kingdom citizen, Jesus says, is mercy. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Followers of Jesus will have hearts of mercy. You see the flow. A kingdom citizen is poor in spirit, recognizing their weakness, they're more focused on their own sins than on the sins of others. They mourn over it. They hate it. They have a right view of themselves. They're meek. They long for God's righteousness. They long for God's ways. And so what's going to spring from that heart, notice, is going to be mercy. They will be patient with the sins and flaws of others. They will forgive others. They will show compassion to others because they have been the recipients of divine mercy and they in turn will be merciful toward other people. Do you see the flow? It flows from this new heart. Mercy is the first response in the heart of God toward you. And so it will be the first response in the heart of his kingdom citizens as well. So again, just notice how the Christian life isn't this just code of ethics, just this list of do's and don'ts. It's, it's a reality that God produces in the heart. They will be merciful. Again, look at, look at what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes here on this. He says, a Christian is something before he does anything. <laughs> and we have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. The Christian gospel, he says, places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. Oh, that's huge. The attitude is more significant than the action. We are Christians, and our actions are the outcome. 
of that. You see that. That order is life or death. And that's really important as you come to this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful because here's why. You could wrongly interpret this legalistically as, well, the only way to obtain God's mercy is to show mercy to others. Verse 7, only the merciful receive mercy. Or look ahead, chapter 6, look at verses 14 and 15. We'll talk more about this when we get here, but chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. See right there? If I'm not merciful, I don't get mercy. If I'm merciful, I earn mercy. But that's the wrong starting point. Because first and foremost... Merciful is what you are, Christian. God makes people like this. So first of all, what does it mean to be merciful? Who, who are the merciful? And I just want to highlight at least two things mercy means. Two things. To be merciful, first, is to show compassion on the weak, the suffering, and second, it is to forgive those who wrong you. First, it's to show compassion. Mercy is to show compassion. We see this even later in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice in chapter 6, verses 2 to 4, Jesus is going to speak here about how you should give to the needy, how you should give to those in need. But honestly, to, to understand this idea of compassion, we really need to look no further than Jesus himself. I mean, was there anyone who was ever more merciful than Jesus? Again and again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, he has, he has compassion, he has mercy on people in need. On the blind, the lame, the sick, those who are overlooked, the demon-possessed, the sinner, and... and and then, mercy of all mercies, he shows compassion on sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And he is drawn. He's drawn to our sinful weakness. He doesn't recoil away from it. He's drawn toward it. He's drawn toward you. He's drawn to respond to you in mercy. That's his heart. You see that? Jesus says, I see your sin, I see your guilt, and I want to pay for your guilt. I want to forgive you, I want to cleanse you, I want to heal you, I'm drawn to you in mercy. That's the heart of Jesus. And this is the reality that King Jesus will put in the hearts of his kingdom citizens. His compassion toward others. This movement of your heart toward those in need, helpless, sick, vulnerable, needy, broken, the sinner. This is the very heart of Jesus, and he's beckoning you into his life. You remember Jesus weeping 
over Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, I wish I could gather them in. Do you ever like look at the world, watch the news and think, I wish I, I, wish I could gather them in? That's the heart of Jesus. It means to show compassion, but it also means not only to show compassion, it means to forgive. To forgive those who wrong you. This is another element of mercy. But listen, here's the, here's the temptation, I think, for us. It's possible to feel that you have been overwhelmed by mercy. God's mercy. And then in the very next breath to turn around and be merciless to others. To be amazed at mercy. But then someone wrongs me and you become merciless. Judge, jury, exacting punishment. And I think perhaps there's no greater illustration of this than in Matthew chapter 18. Turn there with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 18, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant, or you could say the merciless servant. Notice the context in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Number of completeness. The rabbi said three times, so this is double that, plus one. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I heard a preacher say one time, if you're doing the math, you've missed the point. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is about 20 years worth of wages. So 20 years. This is 10,000 talents. This is big money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So this guy owes a debt so big. I mean, this is, this is so much money that his master is going to sell him into slavery along with his wife, along with his children in order to recoup his debt. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees. Imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, mercy, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Think about how that must feel. I could never pay this back, this enormous debt. I'm going away for life. Me and my kids were sold into slavery for life. 
And so verse 26, I fell on my knees and I begged and I pleaded and my master, he forgave it. Oh, my dad, it was gone. Hallelujah. Verse 28, Jesus now drops the bomb. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that's a, that's a day's wage, that's a little money. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same reaction. He refused and went, put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had, been, that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you are a Christian, the testimony of your life is that you owed God a debt you could never pay. And that price for your debt couldn't be settled in eternity. And the just payment for your sin was for God to beat out his holy wrath on your soul forever. That was the only righteous response to your sin. And then, when you cried out, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and he forgave all of your sin. He wiped it all away. As far as the east is from the west, your record was clean. It was all gone. That's what we proclaim, right? That's what we say. Amen? Until someone wrongs us, they sin against us, and then all of a sudden we become the immovable law of God. Pay what you owe. And listen, that isn't to minimize the ways in which you've been hurt, the ways in which you've been wronged. It's really painful. But think about your own personal relationships, coworkers, family members, spouse, anyone who's ever wronged you, even in deep, painful ways, is your heart. Man, I have been wronged so much. How could I not forgive this little infraction? compared to what God has forgiven me. And church, I fear also that in this age where righteousness is eroding in our culture, that we as the church who are called to be salt and light will disdain and despise and hate and be merciless to the world. And we won't see the heart of Jesus in us. We won't look like him to the world. 
No, our God is a merciful God who shows mercy continuously, and his kingdom citizens must be those who show mercy too. This isn't because we can earn mercy. This isn't because we can merit forgiveness. But when Jesus says in verse 7, the merciful shall receive mercy, he means that if mercy, if mercy has changed your heart, you will forgive. You will show mercy from the heart because that's who you are. Nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven, that we have been shown mercy, than the readiness to do the same to others. So mercy is the disposition of a kingdom citizen that leads to action. It's demanded by Jesus, and it's a gift of Jesus. They're merciful. And only the merciful are blessed. Let me remind you of the story of Corrie ten Boom. Anybody know Corrie ten Boom? You're familiar with her story? She tells the story in her book, The Hiding Place, of a meeting after World War II with a guard, a Nazi guard from the Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister had died and where she herself had been subjected to horrible evils and atrocities. Here's what she says, quote, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, that's her sister, pains, her pain-ridden face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming, and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you said, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had said to people over and over the need for forgiveness, kept my hand at my side. Even as the anger, vengeful thoughts boiled over me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While in my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you are a Christian, regardless of the wrong that's been done to you, no matter how painful it is, you can, by God's grace, forgive. 
And so the spotlight, I think, in this beatitude is, are we merciful? Are we able to forgive? Because if so, you have the smile and the favor of the God who's been merciful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has been so merciful. We thank you for the mercy that we have through Christ, his shed blood on the cross that washes away our sin, that has paid our debt. May we hunger to live righteously because you have declared us righteous. May we desire to be merciful because you have been a God who's been so unbelievably merciful to us. Help us, Lord. We need your spirit. We need the life of Jesus in us, leading us, guiding us, strengthening us to do this as we follow you by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.